Welcome back to the program. How many of the candidates running for president today have the depth of character and ideas that if they were to be elected, we still might be talking about them, studying them, and being surprised by them 150 years after their death? The answer is probably none. That is certainly not the case with Abraham Lincoln. 150 years after his death, people like my guest, esteemed Lincoln scholar Harold Holzer, is still plowing the depths of Lincoln's convictions and portraying what he accomplished. Convictions and ideas that are part of the fabric of America and just as important today as they were 150 years ago. Harold Holzer is one of the country's foremost authorities on Lincoln. He's the author of several books, including Lincoln and the Power of the Press. It is my pleasure to welcome Harold Holzer back to this program to talk about his latest work, A Just and Generous Nation, Abraham Lincoln and the Fight for American Opportunity. Harold, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. When you talk about opportunity, when Lincoln talked about opportunity, what did he mean by that? How did he perceive American opportunity? Well, first of all, he perceived it in terms of um, the ability of every person to, as he put it, eat, eat the bread that he makes with his own hands. And that, of course, is his very poetic reference to the limitations on upward mobility that slavery placed on every person of color. Um, so that was the great wrong that made the American experiment hypocritical, not only at home, but in the eyes of the world. Um, and Lincoln believed very much in American exceptionalism and the idea that America was going to light the the beacon that would inspire the uh, European dictatorships to yield to democracy. And he thought, you know, we are not going to do that while slavery exists in more than half of the country. So that was number one. And then he did offer several definitions of what he meant by opportunity. And I think the easiest, although it's as vague as the Constitution itself, is that the government was obliged to clear the paths of laudable pursuit to all, to give all an equal chance in the race of life. So that's where we go to the, to the root. That's the root of it. And, and we can then go and discuss what he did when he had the chance to do things. And really what brings it up and why I start with this, because it is a phrase that we still hear so much in our political dialogue today, and there's always this ongoing debate about what opportunity means. Does it mean the government helping out? Does it mean an equal chance? Or does it mean the government getting out of the way? Or Absolutely. getting out of the way. So it's, it's interesting to think about this contemporary debate that's still going mm-hmm. on in the context of what Lincoln did and how he saw it. You know, he, he, some of it was, was in baby steps. Um, he had a vision that slavery was an, an evil, but he did not, you know, decide to destroy it the day he took office. He believed that the Constitution had enshrined African slavery, and he couldn't do anything about it. But he did when there was an opportunity to um, strike against slavery as a war measure to punish uh, re- rebels to confiscate their pra- property under congressional confiscation laws. He he did it. So. That's certainly clearing the paths of laudable pursuit for people who had been denied that opportunity. And there was, you know, in the whole history of the country, there has never been a presidential uh, executive order, albeit couched as a commander-in-chief's order, that was more sweeping. Um, There's a lot of foolishness 
being written about and discussed today. In fact, I just had an email from a woman who has been besieging me with comments about how Lincoln, um, Lincoln's emancipation was toothless and didn't mean anything and was just a way for him to stave off critics. It's just definitely not true. Um, in, its, in itself, it freed hundreds of thousands of people and, of course, led to the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. But that was not the only thing. Long before slavery, realizing that you couldn't ask each community to build um, a half a mile of railroad track that led to their door and then nowhere else, Lincoln advocated for what was called internal improvement, um, which we call economic development and infrastructure today. I think we continue to make the word very unattractive as we've gone through history. But government investment, railroads, canals, bridges, that was government role, the government's role. That wasn't private enterprise's role. And Lincoln fought for that and, in fact, learned about overspending because Illinois went bankrupt with education and infrastructure. But, you know, they learned to do it within budget. But Lincoln was very much in favor of that. And during the war, there was... Um, there was a, uh, a sense that the idea of extending the railroad to the west, ocean to ocean, would unify the country and create enormous economic opportunity, and that was also a government uh, priority under Lincoln. Taxation, he had a moment when he applied a, uh, a flat tax to help support the Civil War. Lincoln is the father of the first federal income tax, like it or not. I'm sure he didn't like it because he had to pay two percentage, but... It, it it dawned on him later, just as it dawned on him that black soldiers deserved equal pay to white soldiers that didn't happen right away. It dawned on him that not that people in every income bracket should not pay the same tax. So they changed it to make it sort of not as progressive and not as complicated as it is today, but two or three levels of taxation. So there you have another example of Lincoln, Lincoln applying sort of a timeless... Um, recognition that it's not sharing the wealth, but that people with with greater wealth have um, a, a bigger a bigger responsibility to help pay for the government mm-hmm. under which we all benefit. I want to try and put this in in context. Would these ideas that were ideas being debated at the time? Would there were various opinions around this, or would these things? That, that really Lincoln put forth and was the primogenitor of more than, than being simply a position within the context of a political debate at the time? Well, that's a, that's a really good question, and I'm going to give a really bad answer, which is that it's both, you know, certainly in the infrastructure, uh, economic development, internal improvements world, he was a Whig uh, by political affiliation, and this was Whig Party, Henry Clay, dogma, and he was as loyal as could be to that um, to that philosophy. Jacksonian Democrats were not, Whigs were, and he followed the party line. He was a leader in Illinois and certainly was um, nationalized the the um, the uh, approach when he became president to the extent he could when so many, you know, a million dollars a day is being spent on the war. Um, on tax policy, he had to create a revenue stream. Unlike modern presidents who commit to wars and don't pay for them, Lincoln decided it would be prudent to pay for the war that he was waging to save to save the Union. So he was certainly a leader there. He's a leader in the idea of, of extending free labor and opportunity and interpreting 
the, the declaration to mean that everybody, regardless of racial origin, had the right, again, to, as he put it, you know, to work for wages today, uh, to work for himself tomorrow, and maybe the day after to employ workers to work for him. So it, there's an upward mobility, and as my co-author Norton Garfinkel and I describe it in, in our book, it's really uh, a middle-class society ethic. You know, we, with the last two or three election cycles, people are talk talk about the middle class as never before. But Lincoln was talking about it, and and people around him were saying, "We have a middle class president at last," and 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 he is bringing middle class values to the presidency. We, we people don't recognize that so much, and it's 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 good to be reminded of it that he was the first in that as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, he talked about unfinished work, and half of our book is devoted to the idea of how subsequent generations of politicians, Republican and Democratic, have handled the unfinished work and interpreted the Lincoln legacy. And as you suggested at the beginning, boy, it's been really diverse and different and in some ways deadly for the country if people didn't get it right. Right. At the time... At Lincoln's time, what was the pushback to these ideas? How were, were the uh, how did the opposition frame its debate against Lincoln? You did ask that before, and I didn't get to it. You're absolutely right. Sorry that I neglected to put that in my otherwise really long answer. So, the the Democratic Party in the 1840s and 50s thought that it was not the responsibility of government to build public works. That if somebody wanted to build a railroad, that you know, a, a guy ought to buy land and bring workers and build tracks and operate it all privately. The idea of government investment in the common good was not a Democratic Party, was not a Jeffersonian or Jacksonian um, philosophy. So there was enormous pushback as these Western states who keep getting admitted to the Union go back and forth between Whig and Democratic majorities, and whoever is in control, you know, inflicts. The policy on the on the people on the subject of slavery, which of course is the biggest um, impediment to upward mobility, certainly for slaves, but also in a way for the whole South. I mean, the whole South is frozen into a, uh, a, a an aristocracy versus uh, poor whites and slaves, a system and a family structure that was in place for two or three hundred two hundred years by the time Lincoln uh, gets into a position of power. So. The slave advocates push back enormously, and they realize that with new Western states joining the Union, they're going to lose their majority. They're going to lose their control over the Congress, the presidency, and the Supreme Court. So they want to create more slave states. They push a, uh, a policy in which white settlers can vote on whether to have slavery in their new territories or not. And that's when Lincoln comes to the national fore by arguing against that possibility. You cannot ask people to vote yes or no on something that's basically inhumane, criminal, and against the idea of upward mobility. And that was the fight that led to the war itself. What did Lincoln see as his most important unfinished business? What what had he tried to accomplish that he just couldn't get done? Well, I think we can take uh, a look at his final speech. Um, he didn't know it was going to be his final speech, but it was his only major public address on the way he saw Reconstruction coming together. And he thought, A, he should make it easy for 
errant whites to get back into the Union and pledge loyalty to the United States, even if they had fought against the Union. And he thought it should be simple. It shouldn't require many people to vote yes to create new constitutions. Um, in that last speech, he's also watching the states one by one ratify the 13th Amendment. That, in a sense, it remains unfinished. I mean, I think he knew that he would get the three quarters of the states, but he wanted to be there when it happened. He was so excited when his own state became the first or second state to ratify that he held a rally from the White House and appeared at a window and made a speech about that. So you know he would have made a big opportunity, as we call it today, out of the ratification that unfortunately happened uh, eight months after he died in December 1865. I think he, if he knew he was going to die on the 14th of April, he would have said that was unfinished. But the other big thing, and the thing that in a way cost him his life, because John Wilkes Booth was in the audience for that final speech and heard him utter these words, is the idea that the elective franchise should be extended, the right to vote to African Americans. Not state by state, not locality by locality, not based on property or wealth, but based on the inherent American right to vote. I mean, immigrants were flowing in and voting, but not black people. It was really hard. So he called for votes, voting rights for black people in that last speech. If you read it today, it sounds like he's backward. He says, maybe just for the very intelligent and those who have fought on our ranks as soldiers. It sounds like means testing today, but then it was a breathtaking act of political courage. And three days later, Booth, who said that's the last speech you'll ever make, killed him. Now, you know, it, in a way, it took 100 years for that unfinished work to start getting finished, and now you can make the argument that those rights are being rescinded uh, by uh, local authority, state by state, now that the Voting Rights Act has been sort of gutted. But then we get into another big debate again, the old state rights versus federal rights argument that has been with us for you know, 175 years. To what extent did Lincoln see the economic opportunity as a moral imperative? We know we know where he stood in terms of slavery and, and the moral issues surrounding that. How did he yeah. see the moral imperative and the economic issues? He, you know, I think he's, again, you know, I like to go back to Scripture, which in my case is the original words. And, and I'll make the argument first, I guess. It's everything to him. The, the America is all about opportunity. It's the right to rise up and to... Um, and to share in the blessings of the land and improve yourself, improvement, improvement. He did it himself. He wanted others to have the chance. Education, economic opportunity, free land. I mean, we don't do that anymore, unfortunately, for me. But that was an, an ethos. And so he gets to Trenton, New Jersey in February 1861 en route to his um, first inauguration. And he's been making speeches all along the way saying, let's tamp down this crisis, let's get together, let's all be friends. He gets to Trenton and he sees the Hessian barracks and he sees the you know, places that George Washington stood in and he's always been an admirer of Washington. And he says, you know, he I, I, goes before the legislature and he says, 
I remember as a boy, I read a book once called Parson Weems' Life of Washington. I remember, like all young boys, I was excited about the battles and the generals. But the more I thought about it, it was not just that, but it was the reasons that they thought that all should have an equal chance. And that's what it's all about. An equal chance means self-improvement and betterment and rising up the economic ladder. And, you know, without an aristocracy, much less a slaveholding aristocracy, to stand as impediments to reaching the the dreams that your talent and hard work entitled you to at least aspire to. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what, how Lincoln saw a middle class. What did that mean to him? Obviously, it's very different than what we think about today. Yes. Well, Whig philosophy, which Lincoln carried with him all his life, meant um, less a farm life and more an urban life. It meant uh, it meant opportunities for good jobs in factories. And there were no labor unions, and it was awfully hard work, and it was six days a week. But that was a step up from growing potatoes to keep you alive in the winter. You know, it was a step up. So factories and and people working in factories and supporting families. Um, you know, Lincoln had lived on a farm. Farmers generally had eight children if they could so that, you know, three girls could cook and five boys could plow. Uh, Lincoln was the only boy, and he had to do everything with his father, and he came to hate it because his father had basically skimmed in life from farm to farm. I don't mean stolen, but, you know, sort of slipped from farm to farm, never had clear land title, and was going nowhere. And Lincoln didn't, you know, didn't respect his father because of that. There was no, there was no sense that there was something better. And Lincoln believed that there was always something better for everybody. But I think he basically saw it as urbanization um, and um, the Industrial Revolution. He, with the opportunity it brought not only to investors and builders and entrepreneurs, but also wage earners. Wage earning was a big thing because most of the country was simply making enough money to to create food and and products for barter. It was a pretty primitive system, and Lincoln's you know Lincoln was born when Jefferson was still president. It was a very primitive system, and Jefferson may have thought it was um, the ideal, but Lincoln, uh, to his credit, saw technology as changing that. He was always a big tech guy we call him today. So I think that sort of um, explains why he moved on to larger fields himself and uh, bigger places and um, expected everyone or hoped everyone would have the same chance. What is the main thing that I guess politicians and the public in general, I suppose, get wrong in trying to understand Lincoln, these kind of issues surrounding Lincoln, when it gets discussed today? Well, it's fascinating. I, I, you know, every four years, the presidential candidates begin their quadrennial push to, to get right with Lincoln. And um, one candidate um, invited me to an economic speech um, and quoted Lincoln and one of these famous quotes about an equal chance in the race of life, which is, a, you know, good policy now, good policy then. So I was very interested in hearing that very modest and um, unimpeachable uh, adaptation of Lincolnian economic philosophy. But 
in the last few weeks, another candidate has not once but twice outright faked Lincoln um, philosophy, uh, both on a theological point and on a point of uh, America being in danger of being ripped apart by its own enemies. I mean, certainly Lincoln found that to be true with the Civil War, but he never said quite what this candidate, who shall be nameless, uh, um, aspires to. So, you know, it's it, I have a new cottage industry in taking calls from various <laughs> websites and Politico and to say, is this a real Lincoln quote? Did Lincoln really say this? So I get to say no all the time I get quoted. But I wish people would be a little more careful. I like the idea of interpreting and having a debate about about it, but I don't like the idea of, of the candidates starting with fake quotes and then leaving it to the uh, to the historians to argue back and say, you know, we need to we need a reality check here. In looking as you do and have for so long at the totality of Lincoln's work, his writing, his speeches, and and his actions. Is what Lincoln said that open to interpretation, or is it pretty clear when you look at the totality of the work? Well, we're going to make the point that we think it's clear. And, you know, I've written a, a lot of books in my day. This is probably the most uh, um, argumentative that I've, I've produced, and I really left it to my partner, who is an economist, to... Uh, to bring the book up to date and to talk about Roosevelt versus Hoover and uh, uh, Carter versus Clinton, Bush versus Obama in trying to understand how, and boy, all those recent presidents, both presidents, Bush and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, are all intense Lincoln students and really know the Lincoln canon. Um, Both presidents, Bush, Bill Clinton has given speeches about Abraham Lincoln. Um, and they really feel they know it. So we're, we're going to make a stab at um, uh, expressing what we think is the modern, uh, the best way to interpret um, Lincoln lessons for the, for the current day. But I will say that I always answer the question, that the core of your question, the the biggest lesson that he teaches is not so much uh, public works or um, taxation, fair taxation, or economic opportunity, and, or even freedom. I think his best ex- his his best story is still his own story. Um, you know, he he was as he put it, he was a penniless beginner in the world, and he thought every penniless beginner ought to have the opportunity to do what he did, albeit with more talent than anyone else, but a, he had a huge capacity for work and a burning ambition. Nonetheless, you know, the, the, the log cabin to White House story is real. And, uh, you know, he, he did it and he showed that other people can do it. And there have been a few who have done it, whether it's the back of a store or a haberdashery or, um, you know, um, your grandparents' house in Hawaii. It's, it's a tough slog for people who have gifts but no support system, and only in America can you create your own support system, and that's what Lincoln wanted. Harold Holzer, the book is A Just and Generous Nation, Abraham Lincoln and the Fight for American Opportunity. Harold, I thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thank you.